So what if I told you every phone call you make is helping to fund progressive causes and politicians like Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton? You'd probably stop making phone calls, right? Well, the fact is your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your belief. So what's a patriot like you to do? Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text, competitive prices, and donates up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. Mention promo code Steve at checkout and receive $35 in free activation fees for up to two lines. Call 1-800-PATRIOT or go to patriotmobile.com. Mention promo code Steve. Hey, it's almost the weekend. I know. That means we're one step closer to this election being over. Did an interview with the Canadian Broadcasting Company today, and they asked me who I was going to vote for, and I said, right now, I'm, I'm like Linus waiting for the Great Pumpkin. I am, I'm holding out for Smod until the last possible moment. I know many others, Smod, have abandoned thou, but I will wait for thee. All the way to the end. And then if you do not show, not that I doubt it, of course, but just on the off chance, I end up like Linus at the end and there is no great pumpkin. Then I'll figure it out then. But I'm I'm holding out, holding out until about five minutes before I walk into that ballot box uh, or voting booth on November the 8th. So Smod, all others may run, all others may flee. But I alone can solve. Or I'm sorry, somebody just said that. I alone remain. I alone remain. We'll go with that. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We'll go inside politics with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review coming up here in about 15 minutes. I had another reporter, gentlemen. Uh, Todd and Aaron are here, uh, show contributors. Uh, they're here as well. Had another reporter uh, ask me this morning. They were working on a story for Politico about what's next for the Republican Party, both in this election and beyond. I want to share with you the answer I gave, which they quoted verbatim. I want to share with you the answer I gave, and then you tell me what you think of it. I told them that I thought it was fitting, given who the candidate is, to compare the Republican Party's present and future to reality television shows. The present is Survivor. In Survivor, you may think you have alliances, but in the end, really, it's a one-person game. And it's every man and woman for themselves, and you boil it down. And I think if you're a Republican on the ballot on November the 8th, that's where you're at right now. I think it just comes down to if if I'm in a district or a state where it, where it's helpful to me to cozy up to Trump, I'm going to do it. And if I'm not, I'm not. And I'm not going to or I'm not not going to for any reasons, frankly, other than that at this point. It is literally you're in survivor mode. Every man and woman for themselves. And the, and the voters are the jury on the last episode. All right. So you got to make your case why you outwit, outlast, and outplayed everybody else to get here, and you deserve their vote. But make no mistake, it's about the game you played, not anybody else. You cannot bank on the top of the ticket one way or the other. You just got to play your game. And then for the future, I compared it to Extreme Home Makeover. Because if, if the Republican Party is going to remain a home, let alone a vehicle for conservatives going forward... 
it doesn't need an updating, right? This isn't just, you know what, man, you got those, you got those, you got those old you know, countertops. You got to put some granite in here, you know, maybe change the, you know, the doors on the, on the cabinets. No, no, no. This is where a crew comes in, levels your home in a week and rebuilds the whole thing while the cameras are rolling and they've only got a week to do it. Otherwise the audience loses interest and your show gets canceled. Okay. So I think that's, I mean, that's what the Republican party needs. It, it needs, this isn't the enterprise who's coming back for the Starfleet after a five year mission and it's in space dock for a refit. All right. It needs an extreme home makeover. So that was the quote that I gave Politico this morning. Gentlemen, your thoughts on, uh, on those observations. I think that's what it needs. Uh, I increasingly lose hope that that's going to happen. I'm thinking more along the lines of World War Z, Steve. Just, <laughs> you know, locusts. That's where I... Are we, this, are, are we the ones who... Bi- now, remember, in World War Z, they built the wall. Right? The Jews built the wall. They built the wall. And it didn't work. Uh, the, the wall didn't, didn't hold up in World War Z, as I recall. You love your theology. I... I'm just can't. I think this is 40 years in the desert. I, that's where I'm feeling. I, of course, I want to be wrong, but I can't get away from that. You, you, right now, the like the only song you are singing is "One More Trip Around the Mountain," followed up with. Well, I increasingly lose hope on this, Steve. I mean, how many... Does he say this every night, Aaron? <laughs> this is why I have people to contact me on social media like, you're the most Protestant Catholic I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a great uh, compliment. Nice. Very nice. Uh, I thought what you said was apt, Steve. It was... Um, I mean, it's true. But I am thinking along the more, uh, more along the lines of, of Todd as well. It just needs to... Just needs to be destroyed. That's that's what I've been saying for months now, and that's what I'm probably going to continue to say until uh, some sort of miracle is performed and the GOP uh, magically starts advancing conservative values. Uh, I'm going to be um, clear here. When I first read this in Politico, that's one of those uh, that's one of those news outlets that the Beltway reads a lot, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Yeah, that's why I talk to them. That's yeah, and that's that's what I like the most about that quote is thinking about some sort of GOP or Republican hack in Washington reading those words probably makes them a little upset. I'm just going to tell you right now, and I won't give you any names. Virtually every Republican I've ever known, and I know, I mean, Glenn Thrush at Politico was in the WikiLeaks as. Telling somebody was it John Podesta or somebody an email? Uh, I'm a, a hack. I'm a hack. <laughs> and hey, can I run my story by you for approval? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that one of the stories? Yep. So I mean, that is Politico's reputation. But you won't like it when I tell you this, but it is true. Virtually everybody, every Republican in Washington that I know reads Politico before they read Drudge, Red State, Breitbart. You know what? What you know? Most of us. Or the people, or, or our audience, you know, the first links that many of our people will click on. Most of the Republicans in Washington, even the good ones I know, read Politico first. This is so. It's funny when I have when I have listeners say to me, "Why do you talk to these outlets? Oh, don't you know who they are?" Of course, I know who they are. That's why I'm talking to them. Mm-hmm. Because as much as I love writing columns for a Conservative Review or The Blaze, the reality is, if you want to send a purpose pitch across the bow of the system, you know. You've got to you've, you've got to hit you got to scratch where it itches, 
And the reality is they, they are those are their enclaves. That's just the reality. Those, those are, I'm not, which probably should tell you all you need to know, mm-hmm. by the way. Okay. But that is, those are the information outlets for the bubble that they live in. So um, if, if you want to, if you really want to hit them where it hurts, you want to send them a message. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, uh, there, we, when, when we write for our own entities, and that's important. But a lot of times, if, if this were a classroom, they would be book reports, research papers. But, I mean, if you want to punish somebody, you want to send somebody to detention, you do it in the mainstream media. Because that's what most of these Republicans watch. Yeah. That's what most of them read. So it just depends on what you're looking for. I mean, if you're, if, if you're looking to um, – if, 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 if your primary goal is to get our ideology and our ideas out, then the media we've created is absolutely the best way to do it. But if you want to, if you want to break your foot off on somebody, you want to spank him. You do it in the mainstream media. I mean, what was I was on MS when I was on MSNBC last week? They quoted for me a story that had just come out that morning that Trump was spending most of his day in the in his office at Trump Tower with Bannon, and they had all the TVs on, all the cable news channels, just watching everything everybody said all day. I think people don't really want to know how much these guys and gals are aware and interested in what other people say about them. How much they Google their names. I, I won't tell you who it was. I had a little birdie very close to Reince Priebus tell me about two years ago, you're really getting under his skin. <laughs> yes. And he said, here's, you know, here's what you need to do. He reads everything that is said about him on Twitter. He searches for his name and stuff like that, you know? So just... <laughs> Just tag him at Reince in everything, and he'll, he'll be gripping. I'm on your side, Dace. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the enemy. So, well, <laughs> see, that's the backstory to that story. Okay, that's the back. That's the backstory. So, for months, I was relentless, just tagging him in every every pejorative I threw out there. Until that day, we get to we get to CPAC 2014. He walks up to me and gives me a rather effeminate tap on the shoulder and says, "I'm not the bad guy, Dece," and walks away. So I, I, I never oh. did give you guys the backstory of what led That's... to that, and it's because a little birdie of mine told me the dude is super self-aware about what everybody says about him all the time. That is never not going to be my favorite story, and knowing the backstory now makes it even better. Does it? Does it? Does it? Is it a more enriching experience, a more Absolutely. rewarding story now that you know the backstory? Yeah. Absolutely. All right, we'll go inside politics with Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is the show your atheist college professor warned you about. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's go inside politics. Daniel Horowitz is here from Conservative Review. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? Hey, we're doing all right. You know, I was thinking, Steve, why can't we just have only early voting now? 
you know, we have it a month early anyway. Just only have early voting. Let's end it this week. Are we having this problem again this week? Yeah, we uh, just talked. I heard you working working with him through the board, and it was fine. It was just fine. There must be some processing issue when we click to put him on the air. Yeah, well, it's it's just the same as during the break. I'm going to get him on the phone really quick. Okay. Um... For folks that don't know, I've been following uh, one of the traditions every presidential election is we have the Alfred E. Smith dinner in New York City. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, I believe Al, Al Smith was the first Catholic nominee for any, ma- for any major party for president of the United States. Is that true? For more New York City mayor? Right. Governor right. of New York. Or, and governor of New York, too. Right. And so this is a tradition that both uh, Republican and Democratic nominees set partisanship aside. And, um, you know... Uh, th- there's been times this has actually been really funny and really, I'll go back to the one in 2000 between Bush and Gore. Uh, and, and it's kind of a, a, a lighthearted roast. That's, that's sort of the tradition. And there isn't any kind of partisan mudslinging or anything. From following this on social media and watching the pictures and, and what people's reaction, I don't think, I don't think this is living up to the tradition of this event. Um, we don't live up to anything anymore, Steve. No, it, we it, live down, way it, down. It, it appears we have. Uh, it is. It appears we have. Uh, we have tainted the Al. We've even tainted the Al Smith dinner with this. Uh, with this election, there are reports of Trump being booed. How do you get booed at a at a banquet for religious charities? How does that happen? Do you know? What What do you have to say? And and by the way, that doesn't assume it's his fault. Is that even? Is that a good look? You know, we've had plenty to say about evangelical self-immolation in this election. Not a good look for Catholics to be booing a major party presidential candidate at a charity event. Is that a good look? I don't know. Is it? That's what I'm asking. We should have confessionals all over that place. There should be (laughs) holy water fonts. Uh, Exorcisms should be ongoing. Somebody should be there right now with a a holy water hose just spraying people down. Yes, why? Why not take advantage of this? And, opportunity? and we send Urzan in there with his. The excommunications will continue until morale improves. T-shirt, right? <laughs> and now we've got an event. You Dow- dousings and excommunications. I'm in. You could have flown me in. All right, I think we've got it uh, figured out. Daniel Horowitz is back here with us on the Steve Day Show. Daniel, are you there? Hey, Steve. I'm telling you, this is a Ryan's conspiracy. This is his way to get back at you. Everything, everything is a conspiracy nowadays. Every poll, every debate, every every bit of news I get that I that doesn't tell me what I want to hear, Daniel, is a conspiracy. And 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 then it's a conspiracy to deny the conspiracy. That is 2016. So this is where we are. Yeah. I had a reporter uh, from Politico ask me this morning about the state of the Republican Party's present and future in light of this election. We were just talking about this, so I want to get your take on it. I, I said the Republican Party reminds me of two reality shows. Its present is Survivor. And you may think in Survivor that you have alliances, but it's really every man for himself. And if I were a Republican on the ballot right now, that's all I'd be thinking about. If, if, it, if it benefited me to, to stand next to Trump, I would. If it benefited me to introduce him to the bottom of a bus, I would. And, and it's clear he doesn't care about anybody other than himself. There is no such thing as party unity, big tent, up ticket, down ticket. There's just my ticket. And so I'd be going for mine because he's going for his. And then I think the, the future reminded me of the TV show Extreme Home Makeover. That this is a party that needs a lot more than updating. Uh, that, that it needs somebody to come in, level the house, and rebuild it in a week with the camera crew rolling. Otherwise, the audience gets bored and the show gets canceled. What's your view? 
Well, I mean, I think the one TV show you might want to compare it to is Brokeback Mountain. Um, you know, the relationship, the interplay between the two parties. You're talking about Hannity and Trump, or what was that a reference to? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that, that's one way. I'm, I'm talking about the Republicans and Democrats, even pre-Trump, post-Trump. This is going to continue. Like you said, th- this is a matter of, you know, I was recently looking into investing in a, in a home nearby, and, you know, it was a short sale and everything. I figured it was in bad shape, but the realtor told me, when you walk in there, you got to wear a mask. It, I mean, it smells like a dead body, and that's what the GOP is. This is, like you said, this is not a matter of you get a new kitchen, you get a new floor. This thing needs to be demolished, demolished. Um, and, and I think if there's one thing that we might have to thank Trump for, it's Hillary's election. And if there's one thing we have Hillary to thank for, it might be – that she is the impetus to finally get people to make that extreme makeover instead of tinkering with a broken vessel. So you you have the same opinion that our producer Aaron has. I mean, you think this is a house that that doesn't even need an extreme home makeover. You think it needs condemnation. Like you you want to see you're looking at the Republican Party like it's the morning after the Chernobyl meltdown. Is that what I'm hearing? That is exactly the analogy. There are serious health risks, and when there's a health risk, you got to <laughs> condemn the house, and that's what it is. We are getting contaminated. You, you look at the debate from last Nobody night, can go into RNC headquarters for at least 70 years. Is that what you're saying? The, the, what I'm saying is they take 90-10 issues. It's funny. Donald Trump is very similar. When you take away the bells and whistles, he's very similar to your run-of-the-mill Republican in the respect that they take – 80, 20, 90, 10 issues that are so easy to message, and they turn them into losers. I mean, this whole voter fraud thing, it is such a problem, and people intuitively know it. Hey about, a, hey, about a year ago, about half, half of Americans wanted deportations of illegals just because they were here, yep. even, if they create, even if they committed no other crimes. Now it's like 18%. I've been following the polling on, on building a fence. It has been a super majority support for over a decade. And that's why Hillary that's voted why for it. Up, that's why Hillary yeah, voted Hillary for it a few years ago. Yes. That, that, that's why everyone had to vote for it. You couldn't be caught dead being on the other side of that, that issue. Same thing with voter fraud. Everyone recognizes it. But he takes he has a way of taking gold and smearing it with feces in a way that you can't touch it. And again, this is kind of the way Republicans always acted, even before Trump. This is why we will never get anywhere until we break out of this, this just condemned house and actually condemn it once and for all. So that's the thing. We always share this kind of game theory. Heck, you know, maybe it's a good thing if the Democrats win. Maybe this will finally force us to do what we need to. You could debate that. But at this point, it's happening anyway. You may as well embrace the ancillary benefits of it. You know, as, as Joseph told the brothers, what you thought was bad, ultimately, even during a time of God's judgment, there's always good. There's always opportunities to harness. And that's going to be our challenge, to harness those opportunities come November 9th. You wrote an article about this recently for us at Conservative Review. Quickly before this break, what kind of reaction has that piece gotten in the last few days since you published it? Clearly the, the strongest reaction to anything I've written probably this election cycle. I mean, easily. And almost all of it was positive. People are starving to break, clean, break from the GOP, get some fresh air where they could actually breathe and be proud of a party. This runs a lot deeper than just Trump. It's just the final kind of symptom of, of this uh, 
you know, dying GOP, which has been dying for 27 years, longer than the shelf life of the Whig Party to begin with. Um, people are starving for it. It just needs a match to light the fire. All right, more with uh, Gandalf, who wants you to breathe the free air again. When we come back here on the Steve Day Show, stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Hunting rhinos into extinction. The Steve Day Show. Some more inside politics here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. So, Daniel, some people, and I don't, I'm not talking Trump shills, people whose opinions I respect. I was talking to them after the debate last night, texting with them. I actually thought Donald Trump won that, and it was a good night. Can, can you tell me, am I just incapable of objective analysis now, or have we un- unfurled a high-grade airborne hallucinogen uh, upon um, uh, the American people? You know, I actually think that if the election began last night with last night's debate and there were no preconceived re- revelations about any of the candidates and their baggage, I think he'd, he'd be holding his own. Because on the policies, he clearly won. Now, like you always say, when it's about the issues, we win, or Republicans win, and he expressed the least amount of liberalism last night. There were a couple issues, <laughs> fiscal issues especially, but he was I on like his game. the way he, got the better of her. he expressed the least amount of liberalism. No, that's what it is. I mean, his success, you, you could see the dials, and I know we make fun of Frank Luntz, but I think his, his funny dial scheme actually reflected where people were last night. He was winning on the issues, but then he pissed it all away um, when – you know, the few areas where Chris Wallace deviated from a pretty well-orchestrated debate about the issues, and it became about something else. And then, you know, by saying, I will not commit to supporting or, you know, uh, conceding the election, he threw it all away. You could see the oxygen stuck, getting sucked out. So he threw it. I think fundamentally he won the debate, but he threw away any ancillary benefit. The only thing I think it does do is it exposed Hillary's radicalism more just because no one could talk over the groping over the last couple of weeks. And I think that could have a down-the-ballot effect of people saying, holy heck, we don't want to give over the keys to the Democrats. Yeah, the problem, though, is you, you can't look at, it, look at it as a standalone event. And I, I have maintained that there's only one issue deciding this election. And that issue is, is Donald Trump sane? And I'm dead serious. I think that is the only issue. I think it's been the issue driving the last several months. It is clear from even even someone as uninformed on on our beliefs as Trump is could beat her on on an issue debate because her positions and resume are indefensible. Uh, But but the problem is, if people don't think you're sane, I, I don't even think I hate to say this. I think most Americans don't even care what Donald Trump's positions on the issues are. I think they just wanted to not have to vote for Hillary Clinton. But the problem is. That um, a lot of Americans believe that as as corrupt as Hillary Clinton is, if they elect Donald Trump, they're going to get up one morning and find out we're sending nuclear submarines to Pyongyang because Trump got trolled on Twitter last night. And the way he's behaved in every single one of these debates has just reinforced.
enforce that. The way, in, in fact, I would say, Daniel, we've, we've seen the same pattern in every debate to a varying degree. First 15 minutes of the first debate, I thought he more than held his own. The minute the topic turned to taxes, it was all personalities from there, and it was a complete clown show. Second debate, I thought he was pretty, I thought he actually was pretty strong when it was about the issues. But, but again, uh, the whole, the whole thing comes up when, you know, the way he handled the women issue, the way he kind of stalked her, uh, and his numbers went down some more. Saw the same thing last night. First 45 minutes of that debate was pretty substantive considering who the candidates are on the issues. I thought he more than held his own. Probably got, uh, probably drew some blood from her. But then the minute the topic turned to Putin was sort of the halftime mark. And the second half of the debate, I thought she absolutely pummeled him because he spent a lot of time pummeling himself, saying stuff like, no one respects women more than me, where you had, you had people in the audience literally guffawing out loud, which is terrible optics for the average American at home. And, and so the reality of this is that he, he used the platform of these three debates to instead of challenging this narrative and introducing himself as a plausible president to the American people, he reinforced the one narrative the Democrats had to win this election, and he cemented it for them. And what I'm telling you, Steve, is that's exactly what Frank Luntz picked up in his funny focus group there. You know, when they pulled them on the dials for the immigration issue, it was something like 20 to 2 they sided with Trump. Um, same thing with national security, several other issues. The economics, you know, even though he's kind of incoherent, economics was the same deal. But it was exactly what you said. Where the minute he said, I'm good for the women, that type of deal, it, it, it plummets. So this election is like no other election, where it's a complete referendum on the character of a newcomer challenger to the incumbent party. Or usually if it's a referendum on character, it's you know, the sitting president, it's a referendum on his character. She would have won not on a single policy issue. And I think this is what we need to look towards come November 9th. This is the opportunity. They, they are not winning a real election. They're not winning anything. The people don't want this. They don't want the fundamental transformation. This is the opportunity for us. And also the No, other- but they're going to vote for, for corrupt over crazy every single time. Every, every single time. But, but this is the opportunity I, I saw, and I think what, when you're talking to some people, what they're subconsciously seeing, but they don't know how to properly apply it. You're seeing what a debate would look like if you didn't have the character and personal baggage, if you didn't have the dumpster fire. And you were able You mean to, if we didn't have a nominee that would, would that allowed Hillary Clinton to stand up there in front of 70 million people last night and say DC versus Heller was about gunslinging toddlers? <laughs> I, I mean, th- th- she would have been the joke. They would have been laughing at that instead of I'm 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 the best for women around. And that's the thing. It, it is so frustrating. But alas, this is what we will return to with a Republican Congress. The same thing where you can't have a fair fight. I mean, there's so many people that are like just just get the shackles off. We'll just get our men on the field. You know, I don't care if we win, but at least let's have the opportunity. Mm. And what you're seeing from the political landscape is we do have the opportunity. More with Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Don't blame us. He went to public school. This is Steve Dace. More lines from this uh, Al Smith dinner going on as we speak. 
Donald Trump, quote, like Jesus, I was a carpenter working for my father. Oh, my. Hillary Clinton, quote, I think Donald and I should focus on what brings us together, a mutual hatred of Ted Cruz. Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, your thoughts on those comments? Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Hillary and her liberal Manhattan donor. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, this is the essence of this election. And, and that's why I think our messaging come November 9 should be very simple. And it's that this election was a referendum on the character and behavior of Hillary Clinton's liberal donor. It's very simple. We've never had an election like that. So they're right. They, they have a common en- enemy, conservatives. Now it's time we forge our own path. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, Steve, once my brain is locked in on something, it's hard for me to get off of it. And you often think, hey, you know, this is, this is a pipe dream, but maybe I could do some more incremental. Um, I can make some incremental plays. I can go for the 10-yard pass. I can go for the running play. But th- th- this is the, the play 40 yards down the field I really want to make. But we're at the point where I don't understand what other play we have, what else we can do. After I mean, November we could just kind of sit here and take it and sell some more books. That, I could do that? that. Hey, Danny, you write some good columns chronicling, just like Jer- Jeremiah, the decline of the Republic. <laughs> All right, let's branch out here at this on this uh, on where we're at in this election. I wrote something for Conservative Review today talking about uh, Trump's impact on the Senate races. And for the longest time... We have seen voters appear, at least in the polling that, that's been publicly revealed, to be drawing a distinction between Trump and the rest of Republicans. But now we're starting to see these, the, 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 the thesis and the antithesis kind of merge here down the stretch. And we're getting a bit of a Hegelian dialectic here in, uh, in this election. According to the Republican Party's own internal polling... Seven U.S. Senate seats in the last two and a half weeks, Daniel. Seven. Seven are within the margin for error. Uh, I think off the top of my head, those are Florida, Nevada, Indiana, um, who am I thinking of? North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and I'm forgetting one. Uh, but uh, there's there's one other out there. Seven of them, Missouri is the seventh. Seven within the margin for error. And to even get within the margin for error... Several Republican candidates, like particularly Toomey in Pennsylvania and Ayotte in New Hampshire, are outperforming Trump by double digits in the same states. Can they hold on to those slim leads if indeed the margins at the top of the ticket are that vast? There's no question they can. I mean, you're seeing it. You're seeing it with the House as well. The people don't want to give the keys to Democrats. That is why they've held out this long. Look, if you had any other election where because of the top of the ticket, Arizona is now the major battleground, and Texas, there's two polls that have it within three, four, five points there, there's no way you're holding the Senate. I mean, party's internal polling has Trump losing Georgia by five points right now, Arizona by four. That's the party's internal polling. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if I still had to put money on it, I'd say Republican voters come home. They always wind up do. They always wind up doing that. That's the binary golden calf. But that's about all you're going to get. You're going to get nothing more than those states. You're going to lose every single one of the traditional swing states. It's growing increasingly hard to see how these guys hold on, especially because they're a bunch of boobs. I mean, really, 
you're talking about people with S minus Liberty scores. It's the worst cadre of Senate candidates I've ever seen. There's not a single even, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I was going to give it an, an uh, uh, well, let's look at let's look at Rubio. Guy, but I think that's being too charitable. Let's look at Rubio for a second. He has a passing grade on our Liberty Score. He's he's at least a C student. He would he would yeah. have he would actually have the best grade of all the people we've just talked about. Okay, let's look at his state now. Last week, North Florida University put out a poll, had him up by seven, and in their news release said that he was quote on his way to reelection unquote. But the early voting in Florida, Democrats have made huge gains compared to where they were in 2012. In new voter registrations for this cycle in Florida, Republicans have registered 53,000 new voters, or, or I'm sorry, about 60,000 new voters. Democrats have registered over 503,000 new voters. Can, can Marco Rubio withstand that kind of an early voting onslaught? Well, I mean, for, first it's just important to point out, isn't it amazing how small this Fox News world is? Donald Trump won all but one county. In Florida. I mean, yep. that was his stomping ground. That yep. was his triumph, winning Florida the way he did. And, and look, at, look at what happened in the macro sense with, with voter registration there. So I'm just saying that whole influence, Trump mania from Fox News in the primary, it's a very small world. Um, as far as Rubio is concerned, I think a better opponent could take him down, but this has been something that has plagued the Democrats for about a decade. They literally have no bench in that state. This is why it's such a shame, because conservatives could do so many good things with that state. Um, Democrats have no viable candidate there. So I think ultimately Rubio pulls it out. But, you know, look, the Democrats don't need to get that seat. They really don't. There's enough seats on the table. But one other thing, Steve, does it even matter? If Republicans hold the House and, you know, they actually stand up as an opposition party, you could block everything. And either way, you're not going to promote good stuff because you don't have the presidency. So... Whether you have 49 or 51 in a body controlled by 60 senators means nothing except for judicial nominees. And if you think that a 51-seat majority from the Republicans with 30, 40 rhinos is going to block judicial noms, you haven't been paying attention. Or even affirm the ones that you would like if the other guy won, for that matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it really doesn't matter. And it's not just Daniel Uber conservative saying this. Even from a traditional Republican perspective, perspective no, we've got my we've got my Senator Charles Grassley running the Judiciary Committee in this term, and he's just been up there and rubber stamped every one of Obama's judicial nominees. Oh yeah, Pat Leahy is the is the de facto chairman. He whispers into Grassley's ear what to do, and uh, um, literally, if, if if he says Democrats object to a certain piece of legislation, he will not bring it up for a vote, even though they have the majority in the committee. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter one bit. I'm just saying, even if you believe it's worth continuing down this path, as long as you have a GOP House, the Senate is meaningless. Always good to get sunshine <laughs> from our good friend Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review. Daniel, we'll do it again next week, man. Can't wait. Take care. All right. We'll come back. Wrap up Hour 1 next. You're listening to Steve Dace. No other show sounds like him, because no other show would dare. This is Steve Dace.
Chances are your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your values. And that's why we created Patriot Mobile. To give conservatives like us a chance to put our money where our values are and support a company that we know will invest our valuable resources right back in to our values. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talk and text and high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices and They'll donate up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization of your choice. So you're going to get the same quality service, the latest and greatest phones, competitive prices, but all for causes that you believe in. So go to PatriotMobile.com, PatriotMobile.com, or call 1-800-A-PATRIOT. That's 1-800-A-PATRIOT. And when you decide to make the switch, please use the promo code STEVE to get the $35 activation fee waived on up to two phones. So, gentlemen, any thoughts on what we heard from Daniel Horowitz in this hour, Aaron? He is singing the song of my people. I mean, I've been saying this for months, and I will continue to say it again. Aaron's song, it burn it down, burn it down. Burn it down. You got yeah. that right, boss. Um, this, I, I, is it more of a jazz? More, You know, it sounds like, a, I'm guessing you're burn it down. It's kind of like an, an intense R&B breakup song, burn yeah, it down, sure. right? You know, yeah. we got, so we got like the slow... Johnny Gill, Bobby mm-hmm. Brown, back in the day, you know, um, uh, you know Keith Sweat, you know, bass beat going on. It's that, that's sort. Don't you think that's sort of Aaron's "Burn It Down" song? Kind of an intense R and B, you know. I have flavor. no idea what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Todd's like I'm. Uh, I'm white. I'm There's sorry. any I, French I electronic music? Yes, Stuart. I speak chive. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was following the Al Smith dinner on Twitter. I have no idea what you yeah, that's non-white people are referring to. My apologies. Oh, man, the Al Smith dinner. Uh, yeah, it's just, I, again, and I've made this analogy many times, uh, if you have a corrupting influence, if you have an idol, needs to be smashed. Now, I know that this is not a, a one-to-one example between the idols of the Old Testament um, and, and what we're seeing today with the GOP, um, but I, I don't think it would hurt anything to destroy it, would it? I don't know. Todd, what do you think, think it would uh, Daniel have to say? Answered. Uh, you sound I, a little bit like Donald Trump talking to talking to black voters, right? <laughs> well, you got to lose. Yeah. yeah, nothing from the Democrats. Giving it. Let's so try Aaron's, this. Let's Aaron's try like, it. we've done every. Listen, we've done everything in this party except nuke it. Let's see what happens. Daniel's like the uh, the West's craven of political analysts. You know, he just got. Slasher film all, all over him. Isn't there? I haven't seen it. You, I, you, you may have seen it or heard of it. Isn't there a store, a show out there about a serial killer who's trained at an early age just to kill bad people? Dexter, yeah, Dexter. Yeah, yeah. I never oh, it saw Dexter? it, but I know Did Daniel Penn. That his several seems... of my several of my several friends I know love that show. By the way, I never saw an episode, but that's what you're talking about. You think yeah. Daniel's Dexter? But da- that's the vibe. But Daniel's. So you're just telling like... us, you're telling me I've got a serial killer on here every single week. Well, I just like Daniel's like, well, what do we got to do to purge this thing? He's thinking in every angle. Hour two is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Come on. 
Hey, we're back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Coming up later in this hour, Ben Shapiro is going to join us. He has a brand new book out called True Allegiance, and we'll talk to him about that as well as the state of things in the culture and in this election. That's coming up a little bit later on in this hour. Uh, coming up next hour, we're going to we're going to talk some theology. And it's not my fault. You you have forced me to do it because. We're seeing a lot of biblical comparisons between Donald Trump and, and certain figures in the Bible. I think we, we've, we've lost count at Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, David, Rahab, and Samson. Are those the five we, yes, is, is, that we hit on? And okay. don't forget he compared himself to Jesus tonight. He did. Yes. He, he did. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, we're going to go through each of these later in the show tonight because... We live in a culture that has lost a lot of its legacy, and, and a key part of its legacy is God's Word. It's the inspiration for most of our legacy, in fact. So if we're going to start throwing it into the throwing it out there and brandishing it as a weapon, well, you better understand that you know the Scriptures are they describe themselves as a double-edged sword for a reason. Okay. Case in point, I'll give you a little preview of what's coming next hour right now. So I've received multiple emails today accusing me of being a Pharisee. Now, who were the Pharisees? A lot of people think they know, but they don't know. See, in the minds of many American Christians, Pharisee is translated as someone who tells me I have to follow what God's word actually says as opposed to my own personal spin on things. That's what most people believe a Pharisee is. You know, there's an, there's an interesting moment when Christ is arguing with the Pharisees. And he says, you know, you guys, have, you guys tithe on every ounce of dill, uh, cumin, and spice. Yet you reject the spirit of the law for the letter of the law. He doesn't tell them not to follow the letter of the law. You ever notice that? He doesn't tell them they shouldn't be tithing on everything. He doesn't tell them that. Oh, you're a bunch of legalists. What are you out there tithing on everything for? Because that's what they were told to do. That's why they were doing it. He doesn't condemn them for tithing. That's what they were told to do. What he condemns them for is the loss of the perspective. That they, they, are, they are following meticulous intricacies of God's law while missing the central point of it in the first place. Because he's pointing out to them, by the way, do you guys know what the whole point of God's law was? You're looking at it. I'm the point of God's law. That's me. All right? I'm the way. And, and what and what did what how how did Jews in the first century refer to themselves often as the way? So that he said, "I'm the way," because keep in mind this is largely a Jewish argument. Because who is Jesus? Jewish, who were most of the people he was talking to, foreign against him. Jewish. This is largely an internal argument within Judaism: is he the Messiah or not? That's largely the argument they're having. People weren't called Christians until after Christ's ascension. First time people are called Christians was in Antioch. How do we know this? Because a certain individual was on his way to go kill himself, some Christians there. What was his name? That would be Saul. That would be Paul, then known as Saul, yes. So this is largely an argument within Judaism about whether or not this is the Messiah or not. That's largely what this argument is about. So the argument that he is having with them is not that it was wrong for them to follow Moses' law. 
But he was saying to them, I'm the fulfillment of this law. And so you're missing the bigger picture. That was the point. There's nothing wrong with following the meticulous to being meticulous. You know, one of the founders of one of the great, well, formerly great denominations in American Protestantism, Charles and John Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church, their detractors hated them so much because of how meticulous they were about pouring over every word of the scriptures behind their back. They used to refer to them as, quote, Bible moths. There is nothing wrong about being meticulous about wanting to follow God's law. But the, 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 point of, the point is, if I am saying, because I tithe, that means I can treat people like dog meat. You missed the, missed the larger point. Because what's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord thy God, all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right? That was, that's right out of the law. And then Jesus says the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And all of the law and all of the prophets can be summarized in these two statements. So it's nothing wrong with following the letter of the law. It is doing the letter of the law for the sake of the spirit of it. That's the problem. It is not pharisaical, folks. One guy even said to me in an email, I'm a Pharisee for, quote, digging into the Bible. That isn't, that's not bad, guys. That's, it's not pharisaical for, to dig into the Bible. It's obedient. Because your response, blasphemer? <laughs> that's essentially what he said. By the way, the, we act like the, the Pharisees weren't always bad. Plenty of Pharisees followed Christ. One of them gave him his tomb. A best research that I've been able to do is, is, is the legacy of the Pharisees goes back to the time of Ezra. Who was Ezra? He was the priest that came and consecrated the, the new temple when they returned to the homeland. So again, you're making points. You're throwing terms out. You don't know what they mean. So shut up. Stop it. Read the New Testament before you actually quote it, maybe. Don't be a Donald Trump. Well, I, I, saw the, I saw the news crawler at the bottom. I saw the Fox News alert. That means I know the whole story. Or I read the headlines. Or you're one of those people who, when I post a, I post a link to a story on my Facebook wall, three seconds later, you have a comment. You clearly haven't read the cotton-picking thing. Ready, fire, aim. Read the book before you comment on it. You don't know what you're talking about. It is not bad to want to know what is God's will and do your best to do it. You want to know, by the way, what is pharisaical? Deciding on your own that your personal, political, or moral calculation is the best way to live out and interpret the scriptures. That's pharisaic. That's self-righteousness. Just like earlier this year, several of you told me I was self-righteous. I, I, I'm trying to live according to a standard other than myself. It, I might not do it right. I might be bad. You might, it might be the wrong standard, but no matter what the standard is outside of myself I'm trying to live up to, it, it, by, by virtue of trying to live to a standard, not myself, it's not, I can't be self-righteous. It's just, again, words are supposed to mean things. Stop with your stupor, stupid, suburban, seeker-friendly, pretend evangelical cliches, because I think I'm a believer because I gave money to Benny Hinn once. Stop. You don't know what you're talking about. And the way some of you wield theology way out of your depth and just bastardize terms and have a way out of context reminds me of what a buddy of mine who used to work on Capitol Hill told me a story once. He went to a self-defense class with a bunch of other guys and gals that work on Capitol Hill. And a guy that used to be a Navy SEAL was teaching the class. And he comes in with a loaded weapon. And he says, 
someone broke through this window, broke through this storefront right now and attacked us. Raise your hand if you'd if if I gave you this weapon. Raise your hand if you'd fire it at them to defend everybody else. And he said, everybody who didn't raise their hand, your 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 money will be refunded. Get out of my class. Why? Because. You're more of a danger. If I teach you how to, uh, what to do with the weapons, did you can get licensed to, care, to, ha- to own one here? You're more of a danger if I give you a loaded weapon that you're not willing to use to defend somebody than if I didn't. Because the perp may come into your home unarmed, but then when you point a weapon at him, you have no intention of actually firing at him. He'll take it from you and then use it on you and everybody else. So get out. That's what many of you are when it comes to the scriptures. That's what you are. You don't have a clue what you are talking about. Let's see what made you the expert. Nobody. I'm not an expert. That's why I read it. I didn't write this book. I'm telling you what it said. You can go read it for yourself. It's not like I have the only copy. Go read it for yourself. Several of you have sent me things. I can tell that you've seriously studied the scriptures. You have a different opinion on uh, than I do. And we've gone back and forth and had a rather productive conversation. Several of you have even changed my mind on things. I guess I didn't like it that way. And it, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's called having a communion, fellowship. But just throwing around cliches, that's not a fellowship. That's hackery. Stop it. I'm sorry your idol sucks as a candidate. I'm sorry he's going to lose. I did everything I could not to get to this point. I warned you for over a year. This is what would happen if we got here. You chose not to listen. I told you on May 3rd on this show, I don't think there's any chance he'll win. I have no problem if people vote for him. I think it's morally justifiable to say i got to vote against Hillary. Just don't distort and bastardize my belief system in the process, and you'll get no grief or beef out of me. Have I not said these things, men, all along? You yes, have. have. I have kept up my end of the bargain. Now you must keep up yours. Listening to Steve Dace. We opine, you decide. You're listening to Steve Dace. Something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz, where we take a look at the stuff we didn't have time to get to earlier in the show. Based on what is the buzz on your social media, at your water cooler at work, uh, according to the headlines as reported by our producer, Aaron, and uh, we respond with the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Uh, first story, a federal appeals court in San Francisco heard from judges, pro-life investigators, and the abortion industry on a dispute over videos that exposed Planned Parenthood's criminal activity. Justices Quinsela Maria Callahan, Andrew D. Hurwitz, Donald W. Malloy of the Ninth Circuit heard the National Abortion Federation 
versus the Central for Medical Progress or a Center for Medical Progress earlier this week in San Francisco. The decision before the court was whether or not to make permanent an injunction issued in July suppressing undercover videos recorded at two NAF conventions. At one point during the, hero, uh, the, during the hearing, Justice Hurwitz inadvertently revealed his personal feelings about what he perceived as the public's interest in the abortion industry's profiteering from, quote-unquote, fresh and intact aborted baby parts. He said, quote, frankly, more people care about an iPhone than anything we're talking about today. Why is that? Why, why is that? Because people care more about iPhones than dead That's babies. part of it. That's part of it. But, you know, again, I understand there's media bias. I, I love it when you guys tell me, well, Steve, the media's against us. Where do I work? Do you guys know? Media? Where, I work in the media, so you... So Joe, uh, so uh, plumber crack uh, Joe there in uh, down in the trailer park in between getting anally probed by gray aliens on Friday nights. Apparently, he knows more about media bias than I do because I only work here. Um, I'm well aware of who the media is. I actually know many of these people on a first name basis that you don't. But you know, we 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 have people with like letterheads, right? And and it says on the top like senator, congressman, governor. That's some pretty big, impressive letterhead, don't you think? You'd think people would know about Yeah, and like people. every time those guys sneeze, every time they issue a proclamation, every time they walk and chew gum at the same time, what does the media usually do? Covers it. Last night we had a Republican presidential nominee, and this they spent 10 minutes debating the abortion issue, did they not? 70 million people watched. Did he bring this up? When she attacked him for wanting to defund Planned Parenthood, which, by the way, he doesn't. He was the only candidate in the primary who said he didn't want to defund Planned Parenthood after being the first to say that he did. Um, but, but let's just assume that we're, we'll, we'll play along. Let's just assume that he does want to defund Planned Parenthood. She attacked him in the debate last night for doing so. Could, could you guys come up with what could be a possible justification, rational, for the average person as to why you might be for defunding Planned Parenthood? Could it be, perhaps... That they farm and harvest and profit in the dismembering and selling of dead baby parts. Do you think that might be a good reason to stop funding an organization? You guys think something to mull think over. That might, yeah. do, do you think most rational people, regardless of whether they vote on this issue or think about it at all, would think even if they didn't agree that that would be a pretty valid reason to at least question whether we ought to give said organization money? Do you think? Maybe seventy maybe. million people watching last night. I'd did get he, on that bandwagon. You think so? Seventy million people last night. Did he bring it up? No. Where were, I mean, um, we, who has the majority in the House? The magic uh, Is that ours. a trick question? <laughs> Do you guys see the point I'm trying to make? Yes. It's, you're, not, you're, you're not without means here. You have people in elected office that could be bringing these matters up. They could be using their platforms to drive this message. When the Democrats wanted to drive a message earlier this summer for funding Planned Parenthood, Todd, what did they do? They catered in their own sit-in. That's what they did. And they drove the message. You can force people to cover things. Look at James O'Keefe. Your, your, your voter fraud movies, James, are a fraud, but we're going to keep firing people over them anyway. Okay? Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, so don't tell me you can't force people to cover things. You can. But it goes back to what you've heard me say before on this show, Todd. We are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of political will. And there is, and we simply do not have the political will on our side to force them to cover these things. But instead, what we'll do is get a whole bunch of pro-life groups that will tell you that all these people that didn't defund Planned Parenthood and all these people that didn't use their platforms to raise awareness on this issue are all the best pro-lifers, are the mostest, and are the hostess with the mostest pro-lifers of all time. So vote accordingly in November, and we'll just play this game again, and again, starting in January. And our courts aren't based on laws either; they're based on emotional uh, bloviating. Like this, courts are supposed to be dispassionate. Th- that's why we do things like even uh, people uh, accused of murder. We we defend them. This is why John Adams set the example he did. Although he was uh, already leaning um, away from being a pro-British, he d- he defended uh, the, the soldiers involved in the Boston massacre. Courts are supposed to be dispassionate. And here he's talking about things that don't matter. If you start thinking like this about this issue, you're going to think about all issues. Yeah, well, you know, that doesn't really tickle me in my funny bone. So, you know, why bother with that? Yeah. Why bother with Roe law? This is, eh, that doesn't make me laugh. Oh, my. Yeah, if uh, most of these legislators with uh, R's behind their names had just maybe uh, a fraction of the amount of courage that David Daleiden has in his pinky, maybe more people would be talking about I'd, this. I'd, I'd never even heard of TPP until people forced this issue to be covered, forced me to look at it two years ago when it came up. I, I didn't even know what it was. I didn't, I, I, I had, why do we know what Hillary Clinton's voting record on this is? You can force this. You can force this issue. You just don't have the will to. All right, I'm going to give you. A, we've only got time for one more. I'm going to give you a choice between high heroism or human waste. Which one do you want? Not not heroin. Heroism. Heroism. Yep. I have no idea what this question means. I guess I'm going to say high heroism. All right. A New give, York, me something, give me something positive. It's like a game a, show now. Yeah. This is fun. A New York man high on LSD took it upon himself to heroically save his neighbor's dog from their devastating house fire. He did this while he was high on LSD. The only problem, though... Is, are we sure if he's on LSD, the house is on fire? The fire was imaginary only existing in his mind. Michael Orchard, 43, I didn't mean found... to step on your punchline. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was perfect. Michael Orchard, 43 years old, was found standing like an action figure. Dog stretched out in his arms outside what he thought was a raging inferno at his neighbor's home in the town of Half Moon, New York, when state troopers found him on Thursday. According to police, Orchard had LSD and cough medicine, a mixture of the two in his system. He uh, complied. He was actually really happy because he thought he had just uh, performed an act of heroism, but really he had just been extremely high. He crashed his car into the neighbor's lawn, too. It was a mess. <laughs> I wish that was also the reason for this election. Oh, it's, a, it's, just a, an acid it, it's a metaphor for it. Ain't that the truth? You're listening to Steve Dace. The Bible and the Constitution don't just apply to Democrats. This is Steve Dace. 
Well, I ain't too proud to admit he's he's one of my personal faves. I, I'm not much of a fanboy for people in our industry. Because, frankly, I'm too busy to listen and read what a lot of other people in our, in our movement have to say. Because I've got my own stuff I've got to churn out. But when I see Ben Shapiro's byline um, or I see him in my Twitter feed, he is uh, one of my must-views. He joins us now. He's got a brand new book coming out here, 1st of November, called True Allegiance. We'll be talking to him about that as well. And I'm sure you can uh, find Ben's work uh, as well at the Daily Wire and his various podcasts. And it's good to have you back on the show, Ben. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty well. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, I was uh, I had a, a reporter from Politico contact me this morning. who was working on a story about where the Republican Party goes from here uh, and and. I want to get your take on the answer I gave them. I, I, I compared the Republican Party to two reality shows, Ben. I, I said, on one hand, in this election, this has now become survivor. You may think you have alliances, but in the end, it's really every man and woman for themselves for the next two and a half weeks. But going forward, I, I, I said that uh, the Republican Party, if it's going to survive, it's going to need an extreme home makeover, not, uh, you know, not an updating, uh, but the kind where they come in for a week, tear the house down and build the whole thing back up all over again. Uh, your view on uh, on my analysis there. Agree, disagree. You want to add anything to it? I mean, I think that the Republican Party is basically breaking down into three segments. There's sort of the established Republican Party characterized by folks like Paul Ryan. There's the there's the conservative kind of never Trump group, which is you know, people like you and me, presumably. Uh, and there's and then there's a lot of people who are ardent about Donald Trump. There's a group of people who are voting for Donald Trump because they feel they have to in order to stop Hillary Clinton. I've never said that there's anything wrong with that. I just don't agree with the risk calculation. Uh, I think that the future of the party is going to depend on all of these various wings recognizing that some errors have been made, to say the least. I think the establishment is going to have to recognize that the, the anger that's directed against the GOP is real, abiding, and in large part justified. There's a feeling that promises have been made by the GOP that were not fulfilled. Uh, deals were cut with the Democrats and never should have been cut. Uh, and if they don't take that anger seriously, there's going to be a backlash again. I think a lot of the conservative, more conservative people are going to have to recognize the constant talk of, of doom, meaning that, you know, saying that this is the end of the republic kind of talk. You know, we can say things are serious because they are. We can say that we're edging closer to the cliff because there are. But not every crisis is the end of the world. And the, the end of the world mentality was used by Trump in this election cycle to try and drive people to the to the edge. We've got to have the guy who's the great destroyer come in. And I think that we're going to have to moderate some of our rhetoric on that. You know, there's we, we can take things seriously without being uh, without being alarmist. And I think that on, on the Trump side, you know, the people who are ardent about Donald Trump, I think they're going to have to recognize that you don't nominate people who don't know what the hell they're talking about and who are career Democrats just because they express the most anger. And I think there are a lot of people who, look, there are a lot of people who, who voted for Trump in the primaries who weren't fully aware of Trump, but what Trump was. There are a lot of people who are voting now for Trump who are aware of him, but, but see Hillary as the greater threat. What I'm talking about is the people who fully knew what Donald Trump was. And I'm talking particularly about some of our, of our colleagues in the media, Steve, mm-hmm. uh, and, and pushed him in the primaries knowing fully what he was because he was a vehicle for their fame, fortune, uh, and, yep. and credibility. And, yep. and those people are, are the ones who I think are, are really going to, uh, or should. The, the, there are some of those people who should pay a pretty heavy 
price with the public for having lied to people about what Trump was, what he was going to do, and how successful he was going to be. Do you think a good litmus test for who those people are, Ben, is these are the people who, uh, even though you're getting ready to lose this election dole bad, want to still go on and sanctimoniously ramble on about never Trump, yada, yada. Are are those the people you're talking about, the people that are essentially like, how dare you not validate my choice rather than have a substantive discussion about why we just might disagree? Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. The people who are already preparing the lifeboats for themselves and saying, burn the ships, we're in the lifeboats. Yeah, those people, the ones who are saying that if we go down, it doesn't matter how large the margin is, it's never Trump that's at fault. It's not, it's not Trump. Trump's perfect. Everything's great. You mm-hmm. know, he was everything we said he was going to be. And the, the people who shout own it at the top of their lungs when they're the ones who drove Donald Trump to victory over 16 other candidates, the vast majority of whom would have crushed Hillary in a general election. You know, that, that I think is... is a good indicator. Anybody who's, let's put it this way, anyone who is panicked right now is, is, is a good indicator that those are the people who probably should not be, you know, looked at as potential leaders of a conservative rebuilding in the aftermath of this. And I don't mean panic about Hillary. We're all panicked about Hillary. It's going to be hell. But, it's, but I'm talking about the people who are panicked for their own personal career safety because they link themselves so closely with a guy who is a charlatan and, and who has used his, his fame and fortune uh, in order to basically generate a, a pay-per-view TV company out of this, which is what's going to happen after this election's over. That's Honestly, I'm, I, I would prefer not to play the blame game at all, but I think it's going to be impossible to avoid because the civil war is being brought about by the people who must avoid blame at all costs. Hmm. The indomitable Ben Shapiro from The Daily Wire here with us talking about his new book, True Allegiance. More with Ben in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. This is Steve Dace. One of the must-reads, must-listens in our movement. Ben Shapiro is here with us. His new book, out November 1st. We've got it linked up on our Facebook wall. We tweeted out the link earlier as well tonight, too. It's called True Allegiance. I'm glad you brought up the rhetoric on on our side that we have used, because that's been something that I felt very convicted about, frankly, professionally and personally. I mean, listen, on one hand, I'm charged a talk show host, Ben, with drawing a crowd and, and sitting here and Ben Stein's IQ is 100 points higher than mine. But if I sat here on the radio and communicated like he did when he was the teacher on the Wonder Years back in the day, no one would listen. Right. So on, on one hand, when you do what you and I do for a living, there must be a sense of urgency. On the other hand, when you do what you and I do full time, we stare into the abyss all the time. So obviously, you know, we're at DEFCON 1. We're at the klaxon alert every single day. But if there was a point in the middle of this where I stopped and I thought to myself, you know what, even if Obama is the very Marxist that I thought he was, you know, it wasn't like my Thanksgiving turkey was drier for the last eight years because he was president. It's not like all my kids' Christmases sucked because he was president. It's not like, you know, Little League, my, my kids' Little League teams were worse because Obama was president. Maybe we, maybe we need to take a step back from the brink here and, and instead of just putting all the blame on the establishment for their treachery creating the environment that led to Trump, but maybe some of us might self-included need to look in the mirror about how did some of our own rhetoric create this environment as well yeah i mean i feel the same way i feel like you know what example during the shutdown over over obamacare there's a lot of talk about obamacare can never be stopped it can never be repealed you know it will never die or remain forever unless we stop it right this very instant now i was on the side of the government shutdown 
But I also saw the other side, which was Trump's, you know, Obama's not going to cave in the face of the government shutdown. He's got the media on his side. He's going to use it to his political advantage. But people were speaking in apocalyptic tones about what was going to happen if the government shutdown didn't move forward or if the government shutdown, on the other side, if the government shutdown did move forward, everyone was going to die. Zombies would run in the streets. There, again, you know, you're right that in our business, you know, we have to talk about the news, and that means that the news is urgent to us. And I, I'm not going to put it on we're trying to draw crowds. I don't I think some people are, but I think that there's some of us who do feel this stuff very deeply, and we do feel like all these issues are very urgent because they are urgent. But at the same time, if we keep saying that we are one foot from the cliff, then it makes it very difficult to say, okay, well, why, why not nominate somebody mm-hmm. or run somebody who's just going to be less bad than the left? Because after all, that's, that's all that matters. And for me, the only thing that's possible to save the country is actually a, a serious conservative movement. So if that serious conservative movement is to move forward in any real way, then we need to be talking about building something, not just talking about, you know, st- standing athwart the rails of history shouting stop. And so that's, it's, it's a difficult lesson to learn. And it's something that, you know, I've had to think about. I think that, you know, good-hearted people have to think about on all sides. How do we get to a point where we lost to the worst Democratic candidate in my lifetime by maybe double digits when all of this is said and done. There's a lot of blame to go around, and I deserve my share of it. Everybody deserves their share of it. So, yeah, I mean, going forward, when, when Hillary proposes something bad, we should say, yes, this is really bad. Yes, this is, this is something that's going to be awful. The only good news is that we live in a, or, or the freest republic in the history of mankind, and, and that gives us the ability to throw her out in four years and the ability to elect Republicans. And, and then... And then hold their feet to the fire. Then say, okay, now it's time for you to roll this stuff back, or we'll or we'll fight you. You've got a brand new book coming out November the first. I've linked to it uh, on Twitter at Steve Day Show. It's uh, up on our Facebook wall tonight as well. Uh, the name of the book is True Allegiance. It's this is a novel. So even though uh, Ben is a master polemicist, but this time you're telling this, you're telling what's happening in our in our culture, Ben, in story form. Tell us about it. Yeah. So so True Allegiance is is about what the dissolution of America would look like. Unfortunately, when I wrote a year and a half ago, uh, half the stuff in America had not yet happened, so it, it seemed a little bit more fictional <laughs> when I wrote it than, than it is now. But it talks about you know, the, the idea that there's a border crisis and the governor of Texas now has to face up against the president of the United States. And simultaneously, the federal government is cracking down on landowners in the West and their face-offs there. And meanwhile, a major American city has broken into racial conflagration and the president of the United States is, is attempting to turn over the local government to basically the race rioters. And it's and meanwhile, you know, at the same time, there's a serious terrorist threat to the homeland. And the hero of the book is racing to stop all of these things from sort of blowing up in his face. It's it, you know, I think that it's, it's an exciting book. It tells the story of what could happen as a possible future. The reason I wrote it as a fiction book is because it's. It's very easy to sound the alarm, you know, in, in sort of the nonfiction sphere and have people write it off as, okay, well, no big deal. Um, you write it in the fiction sphere and you can say, look, this is not what's happening at the moment. This could happen if we don't take the measures that are necessary in order to stop it. It also has more appeal, I think, in, in fiction form to people who may not be conservative because it's still a good story. And the idea is tell a good story and maybe some people will be illuminated by it in, in the same way that more people probably know about capitalism from Ayn Rand than by reading Milton Friedman. Uh, the idea here would be more people might know about some of the crises that are facing the country, both in terms of in, in, in terms of race relations, in terms of immigration, in terms of national security. They might learn some more about that because it's very heavily fact-based. They might learn some more about that in the guise of a, of a rip-roaring adventure thriller as opposed to just, you know, here's a chapter on why Medicare is bad.
Final question along those lines, Ben. How important is it for us as conservatives to be able to tell good stories about what it is we're actually trying to conserve and, 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 and that is to reach people. And I don't, I don't, when we say emotionally, people, there's a bad rap for that in our movement. But, but the ability to move people with empathy, the ability to move people from the perspective of now I understand where you're coming from when it's not just a math equation, but you've personalized it. How important is that? It's everything. I think it's the reason the Republicans have lost. In fact, I think it's one of the only things that Trump has a feel for. I mean, Trump, for, for all of the flaws that the man has, and he has tons of them, the one thing that he knows is he knows how to tell a story. And so he's told the story. I don't think it's a true story, but I think that it's a story that makes people feel one way or another. I think that, that Republicans would do well to look at the morality and the, and the narrative behind what it is they say instead of just trying to be accountants, kind of Paul Ryan style. I don't think that Paul Ryan's style of leadership uh, is going to win any national elections. I do think that if we are able to tell a story about what America faces, about what individuals face, about what is good and, and moral, then we're and, and those are words we don't talk about anymore. We used to talk about them all the time. Reagan used to talk about them all mm-hmm. the time. You know, good and moral are words that, that have gone out of our lexicon because we'd rather talk about practical and impractical. If we can get back to good and moral instead of practical and impractical or effective and ineffective, I think that we're, we've gone a long way toward solving the broader problem that conservatives have in winning elections. It's called True Allegiance. It's on bookshelves around the country November 1st, but you can click on the link we have on our Facebook wall tonight. Go to Amazon.com. Get your pre-order as we speak. Looking forward to it, Ben. As always, thanks for joining us, brother. God bless. You're listening to Steve Dace. to have all the answers, but you do have to know where to find them. The Steve Day Show. Again, the name of Ben Shapiro's new book is True Allegiance. You got a little preview of it tonight. Comes out, I think it's next week? November Uh, November 1st, yeah. So about a week and a half from Mm -hmm. now. But uh, the link is up on our Facebook wall. It's also, we tweeted it out earlier tonight. You can go to Amazon.com, pre-order your copy today. I'm curious what you guys thought about what Ben said at the end when he talked about the importance of conservatives being able to to talk about conservatism through stories as a vehicle. And that and because I felt the same thing when I wrote a nefarious plot. You guys remember I said this to you at the time that I thought doing it this way gave me permission to say some things that if I just if I said it in as strictly a polemic or as an apologetic um, it would have instantly not made it through many people's Overton windows. But when you tell it as a story, that greatly expands the Overton window because now you're bringing the imagination into uh, into the equation as well. And that's what Ben's trying to do with his novel here, True Allegiance. And he thinks this is something that, that is vital for conservatives to adopt uh, going forward. What do you guys think? I completely agree, and it's um, you know it's it's nothing new, and it, and it shouldn't surprise us that no matter what you have to say telling it in the way of a story is often going to be the most effective way of at least getting in the door of of people's minds and at least having a, a chance to capture their minds. I mean, people have been telling stories 
for, I mean, that's that's one of the original forms of communications, passing stories down from generation to generation. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that when we, you know, actually make our points into stories, that people are going to at least have a chance to pay attention. And it becomes even more crucial in a culture like ours that's increasingly polarized. And it's not going to get any more united, I don't think, uh, in the coming days and, and years. It's increasingly important to be able to tell a good story instead of just, as you kind of mentioned, just being a, a polemic. It's really important to speak uh, people's language, and that's why on this show, both in our, the way we communicate on the radio and in our writing, we bring up movies, TV shows all the time for this very reason. That's where people are at. They're not out there studying theology, philosophy. They think they're poli- politically active, but they're hardly getting any red meat. I mean, so- we were comparing the state and the and current and future state of the Republican Party to a couple of reality TV shows at the top of the at the top of tonight's program when I made that analogy. Huh? And that's why we do it. That you, 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 at some people, you do have to. It's trite at times, but you do have to meet people where they live at some point to have a real conversation. What are parables? There They're you stories. go. Stories. Doesn't Paul quote Virgil? I believe the 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 the, the Greek prophet. Uh, doesn't he quote Virgil or reference Virgil? I believe so. At the Areopagus yeah. at, at Mars Hill. I think that's true. I'd have to go back if 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 I if, if I'm wrong. Theology police, by all means, uh, excoriate me. I've got it coming. But I'm, I, I think he does either reference or quote Virgil uh, when he's at the Areopagus. So, I mean, stories are a powerful vehicle. And, and, and it's one that we have essentially just abrogated to our opponents for the last generation. With a few exceptions, the Brad Thors, right? The people of that magnitude. But for the better part of the last generation, all the best stories have been told by the other guys. You're listening to Steve Dace. About to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook. Also, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Coming up a little bit later on, you threaten me. So this is going to be your fault. We're talking theology here in about 15 minutes. Don't say I didn't warn you. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It's that time of the night when our producer, Aaron, gets control of the show. Gets to sow his wild oats here a little bit. Gets to ask us any three things about any three things. Nothing's off limits. That is provided he answers the same questions that he asks of us. So, Aaron, if you are willing to meet that stipulation, you may proceed. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Question one, do you have any new thoughts 
on how to reassert the true meaning of conservatism in America without using the word conservative? I guess the question or the notion that presupposes that is that the word conservative has lost its meaning. I thought that um, the approach Ted Cruz t- took in his, I guess now, meaning largely meaningless uh, vote your conscience speech, but, but prior to that crescendo ending, the rest of the speech, if you'll recall, was a full-throated defense of conservatism. Uh, one of the best we've seen in, in, on a national stage in recent years, except he rarely, if ever, used the term conservative. He used the word freedom a lot. So that, that may be one avenue from a rebranding standpoint. I, I think we're clearly in a post-constitutional society. I think liberty has possibilities as well, although you have a separate libertarian movement that at times crosses over with conservatism and then at other times does not, and then at other times doesn't know what it is, so it nominates Gary Johnson and Bill Weld to be its uh, standard bearers in an election where we're talking about Evan McMullen got into this race, what, in August? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the fact that he might end up being the first candidate in 50 years to win electoral college votes without being a Republican or Democrat. What could have the Libertarian Party with its ballot access done all this time if they had nominated better candidates? Could, could they have won several states? I, 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 could they have at least outperformed Evan McMullen? I, I got to believe so, right? Well, now you're seeing Gary Johnson's numbers drop, and you're seeing Evan McMullen's numbers rise. So, so you know, you've, the word liberty is kind of already identified with a movement that in and of itself is having its own existential identity crisis. So, so maybe, maybe freedom is, is, a, is a packaging to take a look at, Todd. I hope you're right. I think about this quite a bit, and I'm... More frustrated in this area than probably any other area of my contribution to the show, not being able to come up to any answer. Last night, case in point, just the brazenness with which these people lie to the American public uh, because they know they can get away with it. And it's not just these two. The, the entire situation that led to this leads me. This is why I say regularly why all of us need to be reevaluating all of our paradigms. How do we communicate uh, truth? Uh, you know, the, the outcomes are ultimately uh, for God, so we have to be careful uh, how how much we mani- see how much we turn into manipulators, or do we just let fly the gospel as we know it and let come what may? I've I've been trying to do some thinking on this as well, Todd, and it's um, it, it's a little difficult because um, those of us who um, actually have a definition or an idea behind the word conservative, it's it's hard to to think of. At least for me, I, it speaks for myself. Hard to think of anything else replacing that word. I, I always like the idea of trying to take words back from the left or from the other side. Um, I, I've I've come up with liberal a few times. I like the, the true meaning of that word, but it's kind of it doesn't really matter because people are outing themselves as progressive all the time. So I, I, I'm I've thought about something like the conscience uh, movement or something like that, but that doesn't really do a good enough job of uh, all-encompassing um, you know what conservatism as an idea actually is. Your rebrand has to be a word people can spell. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's a pretty general rule. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's kind of by the wayside. I liked your idea, though, Steve, of of freedom. 
Uh, I've also thought about something like federalism as well, but then again, people don't really know what that actually means, too. So. I, well, you know, I I thought about federalism, too, but then I realized most Americans are going to think that means the federal government, government does everything, yeah. and they already think that. So that's not a rebrand either. That's that's an extra brand. We already got a, a party that says that. They're called the Democrats. Yeah. Definitely a conversation worth uh, keeping on having. Question two, is the celebration of Halloween in America getting out of hand? Um, you know, I am not a religious fuddy-duddy about Halloween. I, I, to me, See, I, I was trying to bait you. I, I, I know you were. That's why I just went ahead and blew that premise up to begin with. I'm of the, you know, we have rules. You know, we don't let our kids dress up as the evil characters. We don't let them dress up as villains. I made a quasi-exception with Noah this year with Darth Vader because, obviously, he ends up being the hero at the end of the Star Wars, um, you know, tr- original Star Wars trilogy. So there's a redemptive element with him. And I, and I kind of think that every American boy should trick-or-treat as Darth Vader at least once. It's like a rite of passage. All right? But uh, so we have rules, you know, and... Um, but I'm of the opinion, you know, if if you want to engage the world and this is the one night of the year that everybody knocks on your door and they bring their kids, I don't know why you would not want to participate in that, obviously with boundaries. Now, that being said, Todd, when we see now Halloween is is ranking behind only Christmas as America's most popular and most money spent on holiday. Is it really? Yes, it is. That's now where I think we're we're having some fun with scares and booze and those sorts of things, and that is now where I do my my religious radar gets up a little bit now. Where we're like, I give you an example. When we went to haunted houses as kids, when we were younger, we knew it was a scam. It was basically there as a chance to you, you brought your girlfriends there as an excuse to basically get close to them, and and um, uh, similar to why you'd take them to a scary movie so they would cuddle up with you and see what would happen from there. Can we just can we just keep it real, yo? Let's just keep it real, okay? Sure. And, and we knew we we knew even when they brought out chainsaw, we knew this was fake, right? It wasn't a subculture. It was like once a year you just went there and and you didn't really want to go. Your buddies just kind of dare, so y'all had to go. So you didn't look like you wimped. Out. You know what I'm saying? It was just kind of a a, a a a thing to do on a teenage bucket list or a college bucket list. A few years ago. I went to one of these one of the haunted houses locally. First time I'd gone in years with some friends of mine from church because we just wanted to see what the spiritual environment was like. So we, some of the guys from this youth men's ministry I was in, we all went together, just basically like a recon mission. We were shocked at what we saw. Now, now I, maybe this isn't true everywhere, but we were shocked at how many kids that went to the haunted house were dressing like the characters. Were it was clear this was part of an overall subculture that they were. You know what I'm saying? That this was. You know, that they were taking their Fangoria magazine a little too seriously. You know, it's just a movie, guys, okay? Rob Zombie's not a priest, you know what I'm saying, okay? So I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that we might be, uh, we, might, we might have crossed a Rubicon where this, is, where, where this is concerned, Todd. Agreed, but that says a lot more about every other day other than uh, October 31st, if that subculture exists. This is the world they're living in on a regular basis. These are websites they're surfing on a regular basis. It do, people just don't suddenly go, you know, occult and cray-cray for one day of the week. It's, uh, 
I, I, I'm like you. I think, you know, kids wandering around in costumes getting sort of some candy. And and fr- quite frankly, the relig- is fine. And the religious people complaining like this, what are the odds that those are the people also are the ones that brought us Donald Trump, right? Uh, you know, so. Oh, you mean the ones that are, that are, that are convincing us that Trump is God's anointed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Aaron? Uh, I've never been a huge fan of Halloween. I've never been trick-or-treating in my life, actually. Um, but I, I think with anything, as with anything, it can be taken too far. But the overall indication of what you just mentioned from it being uh, so much money being spent on it, that I would say, yeah, uh, it's starting to get overboard. I mean, there was people in my neighborhood like two weeks ago that already had their Halloween decorations out. It's cray-cray. Uh, question three, uh, game to be at this weekend. Um, game to be at this weekend. Uh, and it can be any sport. You know, we're right in the middle of... Well, if it's any sport, you've got to be at Wrigley Field for the Cubs to have a chance to go to the World Series for the first time since 1945, yeah, when they lost to my Tigers, right? Cubs against Kershaw. Easy decision. Yeah, I, I think that's where you have to go. As much as, you know, I, I love me my football, but... That's like the pop culture epicenter of America this weekend. Agreed. You're listening to Steve Dace. Check us out online at stevedace.com, where you get show archives and opinions each day. You're listening to Steve Dace. And I've been looking forward to this all night long because you know I love to have an, an excuse to talk theology. Welcome back here to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Gentlemen, we continue to see so-called Christians and so-called Christian leaders absolutely bastardize the scriptures to turn out Christian voters for Trump. Now, the polls show us that Trump is going to own this demographic anyway. So I don't, I don't understand why there is this continued need to go there, right? To, to, to whip people up into a frenzy when, when polls show, well, at least among white Catholics and white evangelicals, he's going to clean up. And the same problems he has with the culture at large with non-whites, he has in the church too, so I don't know why we why this there's this notion that we have to let's let's continue to bastardize the scriptures to whip these people up into a frenzy to get them to vote Trump when the polls already show that the people are trying to whip up are already largely voting for him anyway. And you're saying you're not going to get the unchurched by suddenly going Old Testament on no, probably yeah. not. Now I have a theory as to why that is, and you guys tell me if you think I'm right. I think it's because despite talk that this is simply a utilitarian choice and a binary choice. Maybe the reason some leaders and other fellow believers feel the need to continue to exalt Trump in ways he doesn't deserve is because their conscience is telling him, actually, you're not voting for sidewalk cleaner, for city manager. You're voting for the most visible, high-profile position on this planet other than Pope. And frankly, it's probably debatable whether this is a more high-profile position than Pope is or not. All right? Certainly, one would be 1A and one would be 1B. It's just a matter of which where you would rank them. But they would be on the top two line. We all would agree? Yes. Agreed. Okay. So maybe, therefore, the need to exalt Trump is, is 
sort of a self-conscious conscience conviction that it's not just as simple as, you know, brand A versus brand X. And therefore, I need, I need to justify it to my own conscience in some way by saying just utterly foolish and easily refutable things. Now, I've maintained on our show and on these podcasts since May 3rd two things. One, I didn't think Trump had much of a chance to win. Two, I don't have a problem with people voting against Hillary Clinton at all. I can make, I can make a case it's a morally justifiable choice because there is little doubt Hillary Clinton will use the course of power of government to try and, and, and attack the church with it. I don't think anybody that denies that is either a liar or a fool. All right? I don't think there's the evidence for that is almost as overwhelming as the evidence for gravity, guys. Okay, let's be honest about that. So if someone wanted to, if someone has ever said to me, do Trump sucks, but this woman is going to try and destroy us. So I'm going to vote for the person that is the most likely to stop her. I think that's a morally valid argument. Now, my conscience tells me because I live in the public eye and I have to be in public defending these positions all the time that that it's not that simple for me because that means I would have to go in public all the time. And be pitted as the as the person who's supporting Trump versus the and that would put me in the position of defending indefensible things. And and, and I would I would be clown myself if even if I didn't. Because then I'd sit there and say, well, yeah, I agree. He's a lying reprobate. So I get a vote for him. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? I just, that's, that's, that, that doesn't do anything. To, I mean, that, that is, I'm just literally out there debasing myself. And tell me, name me, just as it's undoubted, it's, it's not even, it's not even worth debating what Hillary Clinton will try to do to the church. Tell me what Trump surrogate, what Trump proxy spokesperson is going to emerge from this election cycle with more credibility and, and respect than they entered it with. Can you guys name one? No. No, because I think, I think that's, there's just as much, there's just as little doubt about that too. That it's impossible to go out there and advocate for Trump without making an out of yourself. Stipulated? Uh, seconded. Okay, so, so say Moved. we all. Okay. So that's why we're not going there. But I understand why people would do that. I just, my only thing was, don't demean, water down, dumb down, urinate upon, bastardize the very things I'm fighting to conserve in the process. I have no problem with the position, Trump sucks, yeah, this woman is an existential destroyer, all right? I mean, I get it. Then, you know, do the math and vote accordingly. I don't think that's a morally unjustifiable choice. You guys have been with me on this show every night for the last five months. Have I ever said that it, that it wasn't? No. Have I ever argued the point that it's immoral under any circumstances to vote for Donald Trump? No, and no. still no. people. Yes, what I've argued against is, is, is the stuff we're going to talk about today. See, if you want to know the difference between are you a voter or an idolater? Are you a voter who simply says, this world is not my own? This election, since Smod did not deliver us, okay, we got to make a judgment call in a fallen world. And I got 15 problems with this guy. But this gal, I, I know what she will try and do to me. I don't have a problem with that moral calculation. That just makes you a voter. Trying to make sense in a fallen world of, of the make the best of a, of a, of a, of, of a less than ideal situation. The idolater, though, has to, isn't, can't be satisfied with that. Because the, the idol that you worship requires adoration, requires affection, 
requires exaltation. Soon we will be singing songs, O come let us adore him. Your idols require this of you. O come, let us adore it. You get defensive when Trump is criticized. You use phrases like he's God's anointed. You use statements like America's over if Trump doesn't win. See, you're not a voter now. You're an idolater. Because you're not satisfied with the reality of your situation. But you need to make your situation something other than it is in order to comfort your own heart. That's the classic definition of idolatry, guys. And the idol in this case is either the Republican Party or Donald Trump. Case in point, throughout this election, we have seen Trump compared to four biblical figures. Now, there is an overarching problem with any of these comparisons. All of these four people that Trump is often compared to issued public proclamations recorded in the scriptures of either seeking God's forgiveness or proclaiming God's superiority. All four of these individuals did. Has Trump done either of those two things? He has had the spotlight on him more than any human being on planet Earth for the last year and a half. Has Donald Trump done either of those two things to the best of your knowledge, gentlemen? Not only has he not done them, he's been given so many opportunities to do so, and he's run away from them. Aaron, didn't we have a clip from CBN from a few weeks ago where David Brody of CBN asked Trump his view on God? Right. And it was like 51 seconds, and didn't he reference himself like 9 or 10 or 11 times? Yeah, it was something like that, how he's built these great golf courses and how he looks over the golf yeah, courses. Yeah, he, 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 they're sitting out on a cliff looking at a picturesque landscape. Trump says, wow, when I see stuff like this, I think, how cool is God? Then he just spends the, the next 40 seconds of the 51-second clip talking mm-hmm. about himself. So right away, those two things differentiate him from any of these four people. You're listening to Steve Dace. The application for your foundation. This is Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. All right, let, let's take a look at these uh, comparisons between Trump and biblical figures. Trump is often compared to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a vile dictator. Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to give his people, the Israelites, probably the worst punishment in history they had received up until that point. So he he was used as a weapon. He was used as a weapon, meaning that the Israelites had become such idolaters that that God took his belt off, looked at his children and said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And on the buckle, you know what it said? Nebuchadnezzar is what it said on the buckle. How bad was it? The siege of Jerusalem, people ate their own filth. They ate their own children to avoid starvation. He led the Israelite people off into a captivity that lasted for 70 years. You want to know why Daniel's in Babylon and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in a fiery furnace in Babylon 
threaten to be, if you don't bow down to the chocolate bunny, you want to know why they're there? Because Nebuchadnezzar brought them there as his prisoners. Slaves. And yes, there is a moment where Nebuchadnezzar does proclaim the glory of God when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, except after God does this great work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he turns against God again, to the point that God has to punish him and send him out into the wilderness to live as a wild animal to tame him once and for all. And then Nebuchadnezzar's son assumes the throne on his death, and that is the last ruler of Babylon, because Daniel is brought in to interpret God's meaning once more for Nebuchadnezzar's son. And he looks at the writing of the wall and he says, Mene, Mene, take a parson. You have been weighed, measured, and found wanting. And that is the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Does this sound like something we should aspire for a president of the United States? No? Agreed. How about Cyrus? who was from the kingdom of the Medo-Persians who succeeded the Babylonians. Do you think Cyrus became the next world-dominant figure by popular vote? Think that's what they did? Cyrus just ran a transnational globalist campaign in order to have every nation of the Fertile Crescent said, yes, we'd like to be ruled by the Medes-Persians now. No. He boot-stomped these civilizations. Mass bloodshed. Vicious dictator. And yes, he does proclaim that the Jews are allowed to return to the native homeland and begin rebuilding their civilization. But are you telling me that you want someone as bloodthirsty as Cyrus? That's your comparison for the president of the United States? Is, is that what we want in a president, folks? There's just so much making America great again here, Steve. It's all over the place. It, it's a movement, Todd. I finally get to say this to you for once. Uh, how about David? Well, Steve, David was a serial adulterer. Yes, he was. And he was punished for all of his sins, too. For example, David nearly loses his kingdom when a civil war is begun by his son, Absalom. David had so many dalliances, so many wives, so many family issues because of his various adulteries, it plunged his kingdom into civil war. One of David's sons rapes his stepsister, or half-sister. Does this sound like the ideal of what we want in the president? A civil war, is that what you guys would like? Someone who, who has an immense calling from God, who is anointed at maybe the age of 13 or 14 to be the next king of Israel, and is uniquely gifted in his generation, and is so morally unrestrained, he takes that gift and nearly loses his entire kingdom over it, and, and, and causing untold death, destruction, deprivation of his own people? Is that something we're looking at from the next president of the United States, do you think? Someone whose lack of moral restraint plunges us into civil war. Aaron, is that what you're looking for? Uh, I sure hope not. Finally, Todd, there's Rahab the prostitute. The Texas Republican Party chairman said on, on Tuesday morning that Trump is like Rahab the prostitute. Well, if we want to, well, they do have a similarity in that Trump once owned a prostitution ring. But he was himself not a prostitute. He was more of the pimp. That being said, Rahab risks her own life for God's people. She proclaims her faith in God's superiority. She says, we have seen how your God has smited the people of Canaan. 
and they were next on the hit list. So I will, I will hide you. I will lie for you if you will save me. I'll risk my life in front of my own countrymen and choose you instead because I believe in the superiority of God. Tell me exactly what Donald Trump has in common with that. Anybody? Todd, you know what he has in common with that? I would say absolutely nothing. Nothing! You're listening to Steve Dace. Reminding you that Almighty God is always a majority. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. If you don't like me talking theology, then don't give me an excuse. Hand me a loaded weapon. I'm going to shoot it. Okay, I'm going to fire it off. Continuing our look here at these comparisons between Trump and biblical figures. Even Samson which I can see some comparisons to Samson. Samson was a reprobate in the time of the judges, very similar to a culture like we live in America today, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, like bastardized what the Bible means for, for a, in some hackneyed way for a political election, something like that. But even in Samson's case, you know how he ends up? Blinded, imprisoned, and dead. Why is he there? Because he can't keep his hands off of pagan women. Because he can't keep it in his pants. And so instead of leading the Israelites to some magnificent victory over the Philistines, as he was called to do, Samson's last act is he is blinded by the pagans he was called to conquer. Blinded and imprisoned and bound up. And God, in an act of mercy, sends his Holy Spirit to give Samson superhero strength so he can essentially tear down the, 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 the pillars of the temple to Dagon, the fish demon, and plunge him face down in the dirt with the Philistines. Would you like a president whose lack of moral restraint and discernment ends up with him being bound and blinded and imprisoned by the very nations that we are trying to defeat? Todd, does that look like the, does that the, is that the president that you're looking for? Not remotely so. Steve. What about you, Aaron? Is that do you think that's a campaign you can rally behind? I sure hope not. No. See, here's the problem, folks. The problem is you are comparing Donald Trump or any other politician's character to the human beings in the Bible. But the human beings in the Bible are not the hero. God is. God is the hero. Now, why do we name our kids David and not God? Well, it's a little presumptuous to name your kid Jehovah. Okay, <laughs> the tad self-righteous. Okay, J for short. Exactly. All right, but the but the hero is God. Could Samson, without God's help, guidance, God's Holy Spirit, could he have overcome his own debased morality and been and done anything heroic, even one time? No. What could David have done? Nothing. He was a shepherd boy. Nothing. Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, except when God's spirit is actively working in their lives, how do they treat the nations around them every other moment of their lives? Like brutal, bloodthirsty, vicious dictators. Now, I agree that God's spirit works in the lives of imperfect people to show mercy on his people. But you want clear evidence that God's spirit is at work in imperfect people? 
when they humble themselves before him like Nebuchadnezzar did when his dream was interpreted. When they proclaim the superiority of God to the nations as Cyrus did. Have we seen that evidence in Donald Trump's campaign? Instead, what do we see? We see the Christian and religious leaders who have, who have God has placed around him in order to be his Daniel. Instead, they have been his mouthpieces, his propagandists. They have held him to no standard other than don't be Hillary Clinton. They have not, like Daniel demanded of Nebuchadnezzar, listen, you're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. You're probably going to hate me for it. But as much as I'm afraid of you, Sheol and Sheol is forever. Okay, so I'm going to do what the guy who can send me the Sheol says and tell you what you don't want to hear. When have James Dobbs or any of these people walked into the court of Donald Trump and told him what he doesn't want to hear? When have they done so? That's... And Daniel did it as a slave. With a knife to his throat at all times. He did it. He was conscripted into this service. These men and women around Trump, this court of owls of these pretend Christian leaders, they volunteered for this. They faced no recrimination at all. And they still don't have the courage that Daniel had. So without being surrounded by people that have the courage of a Daniel or a Nehemiah, no, you're not going to get a pagan like Trump to be a seat, to be a Cyrus or a Nebuchadnezzar, except, well, you will get them to be a Cyrus and a Nebuchadnezzar, but not the one, not the ones with the examples we'd like to cite, but the ones history knows actually better than that. Yeah, that's the most depressing part of this. I, I totally understand. And I think this is echoing what you said earlier on. You did people trying to get blood from the turnip that is Donald Trump. We're faced with terrible options. I get that. But if you are a 60 to 70 year old man of the cloth who spent a lot of time behind the bullpit and neck deep in the Bible your entire life, Donald Trump or not Donald Trump, you're supposed to know your role by now. What does it look like, biblically speaking, when you proclaim truth? Shill or do you say uncomfortable truths and say, you know what, that's all I can do? That part is abundantly clear. We can we can talk about Donald Trump later, but these men, Donald Trump or no Trump, are absolute frauds in terms of their calling. There is no such calling that they are embodying in Scripture. Well, and to the degree that people go down that road, they are openly mocked as such by either the prophets or, hey, God himself. But guys, we're we're not electing a pastor here. I mean, you just you just have to remember. Actually, that. given the state of America's pastorate, I'm pretty confident we are electing a pastor here. If you catch my drift, I do catch your drift. Given given the, given what's on most of what is so-called Christian television and radio. Mm-hmm. Given the given given the 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 New York Times best-selling author heretics like Paula Paula White that surround Donald Trump. I think it's actually pretty obvious. We are electing a pastor here. The the saddest, when this is over, the saddest story of this entire election will be the people who went out and debased themselves and threw their credibility away for nothing. And not just because of Trump's looming loss, but because they didn't even have to make these arguments when it was possible for them to win. They could have just simply said... I kind of think the guy's a piece of poop, you know, but he's going to leave me alone. You're not. 
you're trying to tell me that my church service is a sanctuary for dudes who feel pretty to assault women in the bathroom at my here in my church. So, I mean, you're an existential enemy. He's just an immoral fool. That's all they had to say all this time. And they wouldn't have lost any credibility for it at all. That will be the saddest part of this election when it's over. You're listening to Steve Dace. not saying that God is on our side. We're just trying to get on his. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here to wrap it up on a Thursday night here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So what did we learn here this evening? We went inside politics. We heard from Ben Shapiro. We talked some theology. What did we learn here this evening? Aaron, I'll start with you. What did you learn? Well, going back to the conversation that we just had, Bible stories, biblical analogies apply to any political candidate is a very, very dangerous thing. And something that I've realized is that the people who purport to be the most scared of a Hillary Clinton presidency seem to be the same people who are least scared of bastardizing scripture in order to stop it. Mm. And that is... I'm, I that mean, is, listen, I hate to get all black church, and, uh, but come on now. Yeah, that is... That Preach. Is, that is, come on now. That is poison. I mean, that, that is... That's a word right there. Down. <laughs> yeah, it's that poison. is a word right there. That's what I got. I. Oh, there's something else I could say that would be very true and get me in so much trouble. So, Todd, start talking before I say it because I won't be able to control, uh, control myself. I mentioned this on the show once before. I read a book uh, a long time ago called The 100, and it was the 100 most influential people in human history. And number five was a, a, a Chinese man uh, from antiquity no one's ever heard of, but he was the inventor of paper. And that led to the spread of communication in a, in a whole new way. And I bring that up because what we're what we've been talking about a lot of this show is, you know, how do we... As you said, Aaron, how do we tell stories? How do we communicate? And the fact that we talk about that so much is a sign of what level of decadence our culture has fallen into. A culture that no longer understands or knows how to adequately communicate is in big trouble. Yes, we have paper now. We have a lot more than paper. We have the Internet. But we have lost the fundamentals of true communication, seeking the good, the true, and the beautiful in all things. And therefore, we are lost. Hmm. You're describing a culture that is embracing nihilism. That's what you're describing. And and therefore, and, and that goes along with the abuse of the body as well. Whether it's whether it's beyond just having a medical condition, but the cramming and stuffing of your face, uh, which, you know, that's something I've had to wrestle with, whether it is uh, sexual impurity, something else I've had to wrestle with. But the reason that we would we do such damage to the body in a culture that embraces nihilism is because you're no longer this is no longer a temple that God places his spirit. You're no longer a unique being, a creation. You're just a you're just a, 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 a random accident. You're a product of evolution. Therefore, you know what? You, this is just like any car. You drive it until the wheels come off. Right. That's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. 
That is an incredibly optimistic and cheerful thought to end the show on here tonight. There's going to be more on that down the road, I'd imagine, too. So for Weeping Prophets Everywhere, we want to welcome, we want to help you guys uh, have a great evening. Get some sleep tonight. Sleep well, in fact, like a baby even. John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.